I think it's going to be a hot summer uh, and not in the best of ways. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with Federal Reserve journalist Pedro da Costa. If you haven't yet watched part one of this discussion with Pedro, in which he predicts the recent bank failures won't be the last casualties of Fed policy this year, head over to our channel at youtube.com slash Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment themes we discuss in this video. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Pedro da Costa. Do you expect the volatility of the impacts from policy decisions uh, to increase, decrease, or sort of stay the same in this environment we're heading into? I think it's going to increase this year. I mean, this past week, I mean, not not from a baseline of this past week, but if you compare like so far in the first quarter, we're almost at the end of the first quarter to the rest. I think, I think it's going to be a hot summer uh, and not in the best of ways. Okay. That's a good way to put it. Uh, and like you said earlier, you, you don't, you don't think that, you know, SVB is going to be the only, you know, curveball that comes our way uh, this year. I do not. And it might not be, you know, it might not be just like contagion to other regionals. They might be that they stem this part, but then like, Everybody was buying treasuries, so then there's some like liquidity issue with the treasury market, which has been a long, you know, a long-standing concern for regulators. Uh, money market mutual funds are, you know, overdue for for regulatory oversight that is kind of promised but never delivered. So there's a lot of pockets of of fragility. One of the interesting things that we haven't talked about, but it's the Fed was really focused on the Fed A delivered a monetary policy report to Congress that said the financial stability risks were low or moderate. That was Wednesday, right? And also, <laughs> wait, they delivered that last Wednesday? Yeah, th that was part of Powell's testimony <laughs> goes with a monetary policy report. And I think the exact quote I tweeted it was like, financial stability risks are moderate. Um, and so that was Wednesday, right? And then we have Friday and the whole, you know, hell breaks loose. But again, the Fed is really focused on risks from non-bank financial institutions, and yet the risks were actually right there in the banks. So like right under its nose. An interesting twist. So yeah, I do think the volatility is going to increase and it's going to be, you know, a very bumpy 2023. All right. Um, I hesitate to ask this question because I don't want to get you in any hot water, but um, uh, because you talk to people in positions of power, but obviously an anecdote like the one you just told you just can't help hear it and, and question the competence of the people running the show. <laughs> um, what is your level of competence in the confidence in the competence of the people running the show right now? The people are highly competent. I mean, they're extremely uh, well prepared for the for the role, whether it's from the from the governors down. Uh, it's also an extremely complex financial system that remained very large and difficult to regulate post-financial crisis. Uh, not all of, not all the things that needed to be fixed were fixed from the last crisis. So, I mean, they're kind of in, in this really difficult spot. So I don't, I don't know. I definitely don't question their confidence. Uh, but the circumstances are like very, very unprecedented. And, uh, 
and and difficult to manage. So, but it's, it's okay. you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't look good when you when you issue a report like that and then and you have to basically retract it with an emergency action by Sunday night. All right. Well, let's let, let's dig into this just for a second, if you don't mind, because because I do think having read people's comments on this channel for you know years. Um, actually, let me just so I'd go. I yeah. actually go further, man. I having covered the people who are in the Fed system, or you know, they're actually some of the smartest people I've ever met. You know, these are some like deeply analytical and thoughtful people who are like not particularly ideological and you know, imbibe the, both the academic literature and the real life events. Like, this is like, I think it's just, it's also a really difficult ship to manage, you know, to have. And the Fed has this weird tendency toward groupthink where everybody kind of tries to be on the same page. Uh, but sometimes that's to the Fed's detriment because people don't raise their hand and and call something out when it's wrong. To her credit, uh, you know, the, the uh, now, former Vice Chair Leo Brainerd actually protested when some of the regulations were altered or stripped in, in 2018. And she's kind of being lauded for that in retrospect because she warned that this sort of thing could could have happened. So could ensue. Okay. So this is really interesting because, like I said, it, it, we're saying from the comments and stuff, I, I think there is a fairly widespread perception um, or opinion of you know, a lot of people out there of the Fed, either as the Keystone cops, right? You know, the, these were the C students in school who have kind of a quasi-government job uh, and they just don't know what they're doing. Um, or they're sort of twirling mustache villains, right? Where they're running the banking system, you know, just for the benefit of enriching the bankers and we don't care about anybody else. And this is all some sort of grand plan that was written you know, a hundred years ago at Jekyll Island about how we're going to siphon all the money away from everybody and run. And look, I, I, I got to preface this. I am a very, very frequent critic of, of the Fed. So I'm not trying to paint myself here as a Fed apologist or lover, but I think we just have to be realists and say, hey, look, you know, not, not every institution that we disagree with is, is, is run that way out of nefarious intent. Um, there may be just other factors going on. And, and what I'm hearing you say is, hey, you, know, you talk to these people, you, you run, you've run in these circles for decades covering them. And you're saying, look, a lot of these people are really smart people and, and probably really good at well-intentioned. They're just challenged in a couple of different ways. One is, you know, they're, they're trying to basically kind of help steer the ship of the world's largest economy with a very crude set of tools. Right. Um, and it's a very complex system, and yet they have very simplistic tools to manage it with. And then secondly, kind of the, the the bureaucratic challenges of, you know, just trying to get a bunch of smart people to agree on something. They may be smart, but it doesn't mean they're all on the same page. And there's also conflicting constituencies, even within the system. Like we were talking about the regional Fed presidents, right, and their boards of directors. So they... Uh, by design, report to their boards of directors. The the Fed board reports to Congress and Congress alone, which is why like Fed Chair Powell has to go before Congress and testify twice a year on, on the state of monetary policy is because he and he does, he's a very good, you know, uh, he's very good at dealing with the lawmakers like who he, he is very clear about who his bosses actually are. And he defers to them as his bosses. And he talks to them that way. And I think that's why he got reconfirmed in an 18, 80 to 15 vote at a time where inflation was high, you know, and all kinds of things are going on, but people 
lawmakers on both sides of the aisle love Jay Powell. And, you know, the, the whole thing about C students, they're definitely not the C students, man. They're like, everybody's from like a really impressive school and everybody is really, really smart. Uh, but they have different, like, look, the, the regional Fed presidents have the banker constituencies, the community development constituencies. The Fed board has the, the public as a whole, but also financial markets. The New York Fed is dealing with like Wall Street. So it's, it's a very complex and, and fascinating system. But uh, all right. Yeah. Well, look, um, I, this is kind of a really rich, interesting vein. I've got to begin to wrap it up in the interest of time. And you've already given us uh, way more than I, I asked of you, Pedro. So thanks. But, but real quick, in, in, in just putting a bow on this, um, no, folks, I'm, I'm not trying to make the argument that we should all shed a tear for the Fed, um, but um, we should just have a, you know, a more informed understanding of how it runs and the people that run it. Um, Pedro, maybe sort of a closing question for you on this topic is, um, uh, you know, certainly there's things about how the Fed is run that I, 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 I'll put words in your mouth. I, I don't think you either agree with or think they're being handled as best they could. Um, if that's indeed true, um, I, I, I guess I'd just love to get a sense for, you know, how, how flawed an organization is it? Maybe flawed is the wrong word. Um, but but clearly, you know, it could probably benefit from some reform. Would you say a little reform, a moderate reform, or a lot of reform in terms of someone who's watched that institution for so much of your career? Um, like, is it sort of like, is, is, is it the best we're going to get and we should just be happy with it? Or no, it, it's an organization that really does need some continued house cleaning before it's really operating the way we'd probably all like it to. I'm not sure. I've racked my brain over this issue over the years, you know, just as, as somebody who thinks about the institution very closely and, and wants to think about optimal policy. But, you know, whenever you, it, it is a kind of uh, unintended consequences, when, whenever you make one change that you think might be beneficial in one way, you know, it might hurt the system in, in another way. For instance, there's like one, one side of the institutional, the Fed institutional argument is that these regional Fed presidents are too beholden to the bankers and that they're like, they, they might not have as much of a, of a civic minded interest, say, as like a, a, a congressionally, uh, a rather presidentially appointed and Senate vetted candidate, right? The count, and so let's say you get rid of the regional Fed system, you just have a board of governors, just like many of the other banks, like Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, you just have the MPC, they set policy, forget the regionals. You might, and you could argue that that's just, you know, I could see the benefits of that. But at the same time, like the richness of the regional Fed system, the insights that they get from talking and knowing all the different firms locally and regionally, uh, the diversity that you get just from like the different kind of persona that you get into different types of jobs it's hard to argue that that doesn't make the system better you know and so i think i mean i think as the biggest thing would be to minimize conflicts of interest wherever possible you know because of that close relationship to the banking sector create mm -hmm. firewalls that that ensure that people are acting in the best interest of the public uh but as far as major sweeping reform I'm not sure that that's, that's really the issue. Uh, I think we've faced, you know, I think that the appearance of, of the chaos that maybe has been, that has ensued after this crisis 
has a lot to do with the moment that we're in and the general chaos that the world is facing, right? And so the Fed is a prominent institution having to deal with these issues. And so it appears to be in that same mode. But the Fed also got like huge credit during the 20, you know, they used to call it the great moderation, right? The period when interest rates were low and economies were booming and recessions were shallow. And people thought that the Fed was, you know, there's the famous book by Bod Woodward, The Maestro, where Greenspan was hailed as, you know, as a demigod. So uh, maybe this is the other side of that adulation. <laughs> well put. Um, yeah. Um, looks like it may be a while before we see Jerome Powell on the cover of Time magazine as the man who saved the world, right? Following Bernanke's footsteps. It, maybe if the year plays out in his favor, maybe he'll create the perfect funding facility that, that will solve the world's problems. I don't know. There's time yet. There's time yet. <laughs> All right. Well, look, um, last question here before I just ask you where folks can follow you and your work. Um, I know your job again as a, as, as a reporter or journalist. Um, uh, the people watching this program, like I said, are, are trying not to become kind of like, you know, collateral damage uh, to policy decisions here. Um, in your journeys, um, are there any things you're hearing from the people you're talking with that give you any sort of um, perspective on either certain asset classes um, uh, or, you know, to either consider more strongly right now or to avoid right now, given where policy is headed, um, or just any other general advice you might have for the, the regular person, again, just trying not to get steamrolled by these massive tectonic plates that are scraping together here right now. I mean, the main message for the average person is that like your deposits are safe, right? I hate to, to echo Joe Biden, but like this is not the deposit insurance is real and your deposits will be back, especially if they're under $250,000. If they're not, then you should probably be, you know, in thinking about what the future looks like because that's a totally different story. And I, again, I think that this new policy leaves a very wide open interpretation as to whether or not future failures would lead to similar backing. Uh, but I, you know, I think as far as there might be further market turbulence, there might be a crisis, there might be future institutions that go under even, but. You know the banking system as we know it is safe, and the Fed will not allow it to to break in any fundamental way. I think that's that's one key message that I would have. Uh, you know, I don't really have sectoral views. Uh, I I think that the the repricing that we saw in yields over the last three days is just monumental, and I wonder, you know whether it will persist again how, how sticky that is yeah yeah how sticky that is i think but that really depends on just how deep this crisis runs right so again i'm not i'm 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 thankful that i don't have to be in the in the business of making predictions cuz i don't envy those folks okay well we're going to be having our financial advisors come on in just a second here so um they will sit in that unenviable chair bless their hearts <laughs> <laughs> all right pedro thanks so much as always a great discussion um, I, I sense there's going to be other big policy decisions the Fed will be making this year. Uh, and just want to let you know, you have an open door to come back on this program anytime you like to, you know, give us an update when something really big has crossed your, your radar. For folks uh, who don't want to wait that long and want to be able to follow you and your work in the interim, where should they go? Absolutely. So you can find my work at marketnews.com. 
You can check out my podcast, which is called Fed Speak and is available on Spotify, Google, and Apple. Uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter at P-D-A-C-O-S-T-A, P-D-A-C-O-S-T-A. Awesome. And when we edit this, Pedro, we'll put up uh, URLs to all three of those on the screen so folks know exactly where to go. Um, all right, Pedro, it's, um, like I said, it's it's always so enlightening when you're on the program. Thanks for giving us so much of your time. Look forward to having you back on the program soon. My pleasure. This is fun. All right. Well, now's the time on the program where we bring in the partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial advisory firms by Wealthion, to both react to what uh, Pedro said in the interview there, but also let us know what the markets have been up to since last week. And boy, have they been up to a lot. Uh, I'm joined this week by John Lodra, um, lead principal at New Harbor Financial. Uh, his co-lead, Mike Preston, is away for the day. So John's going to have to do double lifting here. Um, hey, John, um, let's let's start with any general reaction you have uh, to the discussion there with Pedro. I always like it when Pedro comes on the program because he offers a real insider perspective around the Fed, you know, a topic we talk about a lot here, um, but we don't know those people personally. Pedro actually does. He gets to talk to them for a living. Um, and, uh, and then once I get your thoughts on that, let, let's definitely get into what's been going on in the markets with all this, this you know, banking instability that's been erupting this week. Yeah. Hi, Adam. Thank you. And uh, thank you to viewers. I enjoyed uh, Pedro's talk. Um, you know, I, I gained a lot of respect for Pedro uh, many years ago. I don't recall exactly when it was, but it was in the middle of the um, kind of subprime crisis. And um, he was uh, basically uninvited to a subsequent uh, Fed press conference because he did his job and asked some some really tough questions uh, in, in the in the heat of that whole thing. And um, typically those kind of pressers are uh, uh, fueled by softball questions of uh, journalists that want to make sure they get asked back to the next one. And I remember very vividly, he he asked some really tough and appropriate questions and and at least temporarily, I think, paid the price for that. But uh, he's always been held in high esteem by 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 me and our our, our team as a result of that. And uh, I, I did find his his you know comments um, very helpful and and perspective you know very good perspective because he does have a a line into the uh, the policymakers that um, uh, are at the Fed and and certainly the, the the news of of the day or this week anyways is absolutely um, some of the bank banking system stresses and uh, the rescues and anything else you want to kind of lump in there but the, the, this is a, this is a episode that absolutely was born and bred by some of the uh, monetary policies that have been um, uh, in in place for the, the better part of the last decade. So we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about all, the, all, the, all those details. He mentioned uh, he had a recent interview with Sheila Baer. Um, she's a, a, a great perspective on things. She's former uh, sitting FDIC chair during the housing crisis. And she just actually, I think within the last day or two, um, penned a, an op-ed, I think, for the Financial Times, where she was really, you know, uh, in a very polite way, um, expressing some concern about the moral hazard and, and the, the precedent that was set by the uh, response to the Silicon Valley Bank um, failure. Um, so I encourage folks to go out and, and read that. Got to give him kudos for a great analogy he talked about, um, and you guys were having a conversation about the in, unstable uh uh, system and the very you know rough tools that the Fed has to to go markets and economies in, in either direction. I think he used the flamethrower and the flash freeze. Uh, I forget the exact tools, but but his kind of uh, follow-on analogy was uh, you know shaking a bottle of ketchup. You know you shake it, shake it, shake it, and then. 
boom, the whole whole bottle comes out at once. And that's, I think, a very fitting analogy for what we're starting to see now kind of express itself in, in markets and, and in the banking system in, in particular. It, it is, and, and I got to give credit to where credit's due. I believe he said that the ketchup analogy was uh, taken from Nick Timrus. So um, right, I'm sure right. Peter would want me to make sure that the the, the right sure. analogizer gets the credit. But I, I I I've already used that since, and I know I'm going to continue to use it again on this program. <laughs> um, and interestingly, I, I just um, recorded Lacey Hunt's um, presentation for the upcoming Wealthy on Conference on Saturday. And uh, after we recorded, I, I, I mentioned the. Uh, the bottle of ketchup analogy, and then Lacey just thought that that was spot on. Um, he'd been using sort of the the straws breaking the camel's back, which is similar, but um, but said he really liked the ketchup angle on it. Um, all right, so um, you know one of the other things that that uh, that Pedro said that sort of stuck with me was that um, he does not think that this is the last crisis that we're going to see this year. Um, you know, he's he's Pedro's not an economic analyst like many of the guests we have on this program or financial analysts, um, but he swims in those waters and he obviously talks to the people who are setting policy. So I, I do consider him to be a lot kind of closer to the pulse, certainly on the policy side. Um, but, you know, his instincts, you know, are telling him that, hey, look, you know, these things are rarely a one and done. And, and the shockwaves um, that are going to be hitting from the lag effects of all the, the Fed policy rates that have been uh, the hikes that have been done so far, you know, that is exactly the, the banging on the bottom of the ketchup, right? That 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 analogy came up when we were talking about the 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 lag effect, which is, you know, bang, 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 bang. They're going to keep slamming into the economy and inflation's going to just still be stubborn. It's just going to come down slowly and then bang all at once, we're going to really get disinflation. And we're going to switch from an inflation problem to a, a deflate or disinflation, maybe even deflation problem. Um, and just to give a little bit of a, again, additional teaser for um, Lacey's presentation at the upcoming conference. Um, when we ended last year, uh, the last time that Lacey was on um, last year, uh, I remember asking him, uh, it, it sounded like Lacey, who has been a big deflationist, you know, for, for, much of his career, but you know, definitely in, in later years, um, you know, he agreed with the Fed that the Fed had to stop fighting the inflation dragon for a moment and had to focus on on killing the inflation dragon because uh, that was the more immediate threat in the near term. Um, but you know, I, I said, look, once we've killed that inflation dragon, it's actually a much smaller dragon than this deflation dragon, right? That we then have to turn our attention back to. And he said, absolutely. And then so I kind of checked in with him on that uh, this time around. And, and he sort of said, yeah, you know, I, I think the inflation dragon, we're still fighting it, but it's it's kind of been mortally wounded. And so, you know, we're going to have to fight that battle for a little bit longer, but we're going to win. And that dragon's going to eventually keel over and die. And then, yes, we're going to have to remember that there's a much bigger brother dragon here <laughs> on the deflation side that we're going to have to then pick the fight back up with again. Um so anyways, uh, you know, uh, it seems to me that that uh, uh, Pedro, you know, is a lot of his comments sort of corroborated uh, that fact for me. So, all right, John, well, look, um, I guess anything else on the, the Pedro side before we flip over into, you know, the, the big yeah, news yeah, of the one, week, which is the ripple effects of all these banking failures? Yeah, one of the things that, that Pedro touched upon, and, and this gets to the reality that the, the Fed is 
at the end of the day, the Fed is a political entity, maybe not political in the sense that it's supposed to be independent, but above all else, the Fed is concerned about its institution, its credibility, its its ability to kind of have credibility, or at least try to try try to exert credibility into its policy decisions. Um, and Pedro kind of pointed out that right as Jerome Powell finally got the market to kind of pay attention that, hey, <laughs> I really am serious about we're going to raise rates, you know, don't be talking pivot, you know, just, just in the last week, it was almost like there was finally a victory there. The market started to, to pay attention. The, the rate odds, you know, were, were starting to fall in line with what he, he's been trying to telegraph. And then this banking thing comes about and it's almost, almost as if right as the, the victory lap was starting, um, this really credible um, event <laughs> uh, has come on the scene that um, has folks, you know, I think rightfully um, saying, well, guess what? That that's that's last year's war that you just you you just had you know, claimed victory on. Now it's a whole new ball game, and and we've seen yields drop pretty pretty precipitously. The odds of uh, rate increases and and the size of those increases is is dramatically shift downward. Uh, I, you know, I don't know what the two year yield is right now, but it dropped like eighty five basis points in in one day. I think it was. It was just huge. You know, I think the last time it, it dropped like that was right before the eighty seven crash. Um, but amazing shockwaves going through uh, that whole uh, calculus matrix that the the Fed is is now faced with. So it's going to be a day by day thing. I think they're going to be, you know, changing their tune day by day, depending on how things play out. Just today, Credit Suisse, a uh, big you know Swiss based uh, investment bank, um, is selling off hard or it's bounced off the lows. But this is a stock that's been in a massive downtrend since 07. It was uh, nearly $80 a share in 07. Uh, today, it's at like $1.80. Uh, and, you know, it's it's been on its last leg seemingly for, for years now. And uh, I think this morning, a, a big Saudi, I think a Saudi uh, backer basically said they're not going to commit more capital. So, so this is a big sy systemic uh, institution. Uh, as much as uh, Pedro, and I want to give props to your conversation with um, Joseph Wang, the Fed guy, I thought that was a fabulous uh, conversation you had with him over the weekend, even if it was prior to the, the remedy that was rolled out by the, the Fed and the FDIC on Sunday evening. Um, really good good listen for folks that want to get to the heart of, you know, kind of the banking system and the Federal Reserve's, you know, role in that. Um, but, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank arguably was not a systemic institution. Its failure arguably would not have had... Um, you know, dramatic, dramatic uh, uh, impacts Major. on the overall system. A credit suisse is a whole nother story, and and there's all kinds of tentacles there. So these these are things that are really evolving really quick here. That um, we're gonna have to watch things hour by hour. Frankly, I think. Thanks, and um, God, I've had so many conversations recently. I can't can't remember right now who I I had this conversation with, um, but it was the um, it, it may have actually been Pedro. Um, that, uh, you know, the, the steps that the U.S. are taking, um, you know, they, 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 they produce shockwaves here domestically, but those shockwaves are oftentimes magnitude elsewhere in the rest of the world. And it may actually be a breakage elsewhere in the rest of the world that then comes back and is the trigger of the next downturn here. And Credit Suisse may exactly be an example of that, right? Um, yeah, just a I quick also, note. As as far yeah. as I'm aware, this uh, Fed, um, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, bank term lending um, 
facility or, or I forget what they call it already uh, that they announced on Sunday in response to uh, to Silicon Valley Bank. I think uh, as with the bailouts in 08, I, I'm pretty sure that foreign banks are eligible to to participate in that. So it, it's just another way of speaking to the interconnectedness of our system with the world, basically. Right. And, and, and it's still a question mark, right? As Pedro was saying, we actually don't know yet if that's available to other players besides Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank yet. It's implied that it is, but the Fed's in a blackout period. And so we haven't been able to really get a lot of details on this yet. Yeah, as, as I understand it, the, so what came out on Sunday was basically uh, for, for Silicon Valley Bank and um, Signature, and, and Signature uh, that they closed in the same action, uh, took over control of. Uh, they basically said, you know, FDIC limits for these institutions, they don't exist. They're, they're unlimited. Your deposits are, are, are protected, unlimited. Separate from that, they, they launched this uh, B, uh, uh, I forget the acronym already, um, but it's, it's basically a, a facility uh, that's been uh, funded through the Federal Deposit Insurance Fund up to, I think, $25 billion, which yeah. is a whole other question as the adequacy of that. Um, but what it allows banks to do, this, this is any bank, as far as I am, I'm aware, that's an FDIC member bank, can pledge uh, you know, treasury securities and mortgage-backed agency bonds, which is part of the root of what's going on here, um, the, the losses on those bonds because of the rise in interest rates that these banks have, have suffered. They're not realized losses yet. They, if they're held to maturity, they're not losses yet. But basically, as a liquidity measure, these banks can pledge those specific forms of, of collateral to, to the uh, Treasury or FDIC in return for immediate liquidity at par value of those securities, those, those bonds. And one of the things I've seen out on the internet, you know, that I think is totally inappropriate is, you know, analogies of like, hey, let me give you my uh, Nissan Altima with 350,000 miles on it. And you're going to, you're going to, you're going to value that as if it were brand new. That That's a completely inappropriate and inaccurate way to characterize this. These, these bonds will 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 not go bankrupt. They'll, they'll be held to maturity by somebody unless the U.S. government goes ba bankrupt. Uh, and it's just the fact that to get the par value, you got to hold them to maturity. So it's either got to be another big bank like a J.P. Morgan basically buying up these banks and because and, they have the wherewithal to, to nurse these things to maturity and have liquidity to, to fund withdrawals from depositors, or it's got to be an institution like the FDIC or Treasury um, or the Fed actually um, basically saying we will provide the liquidity now because we know we'll hold these to security as collateral and we'll get the full full par value. That's really at the heart of what's going on here. This mismatch between available um, assets at these banks and the demands of depositors. And it's just a timing problem. If if those deposits were asked all at once on the date these, these bonds matured, no problem. It's because they're being asked for at a time where the value of these bonds are, are below their par value. So um, I don't want to get too in the weeds of this one, because in the discussion with Joseph that you referenced there, um, John, we got into this a fair amount. Um, yeah, so this is this is exactly sort of, you know, at the heart of, well, one of the things at the heart of the Silicon Valley Bank failure is um, like many other banks um, that are that are in a similar position, um, although Silicon Valley Bank didn't do any hedging, uh, that that really worked against their uh, their situation here. Um, but like like many other banks, which borrow short and then lend long, um, they got upended by the Fed's recent you know change to shooting interest rates you know super high over a super short period of time. 
Um, and so they're taking losses on their, you know, on the bonds that they hold on their balance sheet. And, um, you know, as long as those are unrealized losses and you can hang in there long enough for those bonds to mature and you get paid back at, at, at face value, um, then you're then you're okay as a bank. The problem is is when you're forced to sell those bonds and make those unrealized losses realized losses, which is what was happening to Silicon Valley Bank because their depositors were withdrawing their funds so quickly that they had to you know basically raise capital to be able to pay their depositors, and then it became this sort of vicious cycle. Um, so uh, that that solution of having kind of a third party that can come in and provide that time buffer. And say, you know what, I'm going to make you whole or as close to whole as I can on your deposits, because I've got the ability to hold these things until they mature. That's actually, you know, a, 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 an important and useful tool for trying to not stiff depositors if you can avoid it. Um, now, of course, uh, there's lots of questions that are getting raised around this new term facility, and you know, potentially, does it encourage moral hazard and uh, We'll get into that, I'm sure, in future discussions going forward. I don't want to. I don't want to get into it right now because it's it's a pretty big tangle. Um, but uh, uh, I will tell you when I when I heard that thing be announced, you know, I had all the same questions everybody else did. But I got to tell you, like, I think I think it was 24 billion, but 24, 25 billion, whatever, right? It's terrible now. But after you know the past decade of of bailouts and stimulus packages we've had, the first thought I had was. That all? <laughs> I mean, that doesn't seem like a lot of money, and and I can imagine, you know, like Circle, the stablecoin alone had three point three billion on deposit just with Silicon Valley Bank. So, you know, I'm kind of looking at that as like, look, if that's the purpose of that term lending facility, it doesn't seem like it just doesn't seem like a believable number. There, there's so many banks that I think will want to take advantage of this thing, especially if there's not really a stigma with it. Where it's just like, oh, hey, you know, this is just an easy way for me to turn a loss into a, a, a check for the bank. Like, let's do it tomorrow. Um, that just doesn't seem like it seems like a drop in the bucket of, of what the banks would actually be asking. You're sort of nodding as I'm saying this. So I, I know we don't yeah. know enough of the details yet, but I'm just curious. To the, it, yeah, it's just sort we, of a sad commentary that we're at a point where 25 billion just doesn't really seem like all that much money here. Yeah, in an era where where you know, dollar figures with trillion handles have been thrown around with with effortless ease. Um, yeah, 25 billion seems like a small, small number. One point I want to make very clear, though, um, this 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 issue, um, there was a whole bunch of stuff about Silicon Valley Bank that is unique and, and not even remotely applicable to many other banks. You know, the fact that over 90 percent of its deposit base was uninsured, meaning over the FDIC limits, totally uh, an outlier. Um, that fact alone made their depositor base that much more freaked out and panicked to get out all at once. And it doesn't hurt, it doesn't help that their depositor base are, are the, you know, I don't mean to generalize, but we can, very tech savvy on their iPhone that could transfer, transfer their full balance in a second. That's not like, you know, many depositors and many banks, especially those that hold deposits well below uh, the FDIC insurance. Um, but there are also uh, there are plenty of other institutions that have plenty of liquidity that they don't have to, uh, you know, go and, and sell these these securities at a loss. Uh, Silicon Bank Valley Bank didn't have the liquidity; they were forced to. So there's a big difference, and and here's why it's it's really important not to the the whole idea of a contagion oftentimes can happen because people just don't think first, right? And that's the unfortunate reality of the psych psychology of crowds. There is. Uh, amazing differences between many banks that that shouldn't 
all be lumped into into the same same bucket. Um, and that's that's really important to understand. Um, yeah, and that that was I I kind of got admired on Twitter, you know, Sunday night, sort of trying to parse the nuances of what you just talked about there, John. Twitter's not a place for nuance, nope. <laughs> so it was, nope. it was a bit of a slugfest. Yeah, and, and make uh, make no mistake about this. I'm I'm not, and I'm not expressing on behalf of me or or our firm an endorsement of what was done. There's so much criticism, critique, critique, critique that could be thrown out here. You know, let's start with the CFOs of of these these companies that uh, tech companies that we're having deposits at. I mean, we work really hard every day for our clients that are you know each one many smaller than many times smaller than these these growth companies um, to to keep their money under the FDIC limits to to you know get in in safe places like treasury bills. The fact that a CFO of these companies. Um, I mean, it's 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 cash management 101 for a, a corporate finance office in a company to to uh, diversify your your cash holdings to have it in various vehicles of safety and liquidity and 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 interest. You know, shocking to me what what was done there. I mean, complete malfeasance. I totally agree. And just to give a little anecdote, I was on the phone yesterday with uh, I live in the Bay Area um, with somebody who's. Uh, friend's nephew was a CFO of one of the companies that um, had their cash with Silicon Valley Bank, and he was 26. <laughs> um, and, and not that you can't be responsible when you're 26, but you know that, that's just a very highly inexperienced CFO because you just don't have that many years of experience um, managing that type of capital. Um, so you know uh, there are all sorts of reasons, and of course this was one of the unique weaknesses of Silicon Valley Bank is that it had uh, almost no retail or very few retail deposits. Um, and, and almost all of its depositors were these, Sil these Silicon Valley VC funded startups. Um, so you, you were vulnerable that, that you know, a few retail deposits leave the door. Uh, you hardly notice it as a regular bank. A few big you know, companies take their millions to hundreds of millions out, maybe even billions in Circle's case. You really notice it fast. Um, also, those companies were beginning to really die off because the VC community has stopped funding the startup world. Um, and so all of a sudden, they weren't adding money to Signature Bank anymore, Silicon Valley Bank anymore. They were they were just ripping it out, right? So to your point, John, lots of unique reasons about Silicon Valley Bank. But the the, the point that I was sort of trying to make on, on, on Sunday in terms of the worry, the legit, you know, a legitimate worry about the process is... Um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was a bank that a week before, if you asked people around here, you know, which banks are going to go out of business here, that would have been probably the last one on the list, right? It was one of the ones here that folks just really had an awful lot of confidence in. And then all of a sudden it keels over, right? So that obviously makes everybody say, well, gosh, if that bank could fail overnight, how do I know how safe my bank is, right? And and that's the, the, um, the lack of confidence, the fear that then potentially starts a bank run and any bank, no matter how good, will die if the bank run on it is big enough, right? Yeah, and so absolutely. what you wanted to do is just to make sure that you you tamped down the freakout factor so that we didn't have this contagion of fear that could potentially take down a bunch of other banks that otherwise would be fine, well-run banks that would be fine. They would just get crushed under the, the tsunami of fear, right? You're nodding as I'm saying all yeah. that. Absolutely. And, and, and the bottom line and, and our top of our minds is not becoming experts on the intricacies of bank takeover law and, and procedures. We care about our clients and the safety of their assets. Um, that's our main job. And there are simple, simple things people can do 
to to greatly diminish the concern that that they rightfully should have. A, number one, make sure your cash balances are below FDIC insurance limits. No brainer. And the you know, just because you can get 250 at an institution doesn't mean you should keep 250 there. Um, you know, think about using FDIC insurance funds for for your your working capital needs for you know a few months expenses or whatever, you know. Um uh let's also understand that most banks aren't paying anywhere close to what you can get on T-bills. So, you know, you should be having your money, uh, the bulk of your cash in T-bills, things like that. Um, and there's easy ways to buy T-bills. Adam's talked about uh, how to do it at Treasury Deck. There's easy ways to buy T-bills directly in a brokerage account. We do that for our clients all the time. There are ETFs and, and such out there that hold short-term T-bills. Easy thing to do, you know, get your cash balances down, uh, as you know, not in a panic way, but but to a level that you need for your everyday operating expenses. Just because you can hold 250 at a at a bank doesn't mean you should, because there's probably better alternatives out there. Never minding the worry about a bank, just from a, a yield standpoint. Uh, and, and then, um, you know, you, you obviously want to be to to send you hold assets in a brokerage firm, which our clients do. We custody at TD Ameritrade, which is part of Schwab. Um, you betcha we are uh, turning over every stone and making sure that we have every confidence uh, uh, that Schwab is is a safe place to be. We we have no real imminent or, or material concerns there. Their stock price has, has been weak and there's been some baby in the bath with the bathwater effect there, uh, no doubt about it. But the situation at Schwab is totally different than than um, in the case of like Sil Silicon Valley Bank. You know, the, Deposit base is, is largely insured. Um, they tend to be small cash balances for people just to keep their sweep uh, overage for, from their securities trading. You know, they, they mainly hold an account to to hold stocks and bonds and things like that. And they might just hold a, you know, one or two or three or 10% even maybe cash. Um, you know, totally different situation than, than, than a, a Silicon Valley bank. Schwab's got very good liquidity and cash flow. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of other banks out there, but you know, when you get into securities, it starts kicking into uh, SIPC uh, protection, which is uh, short for a Silicon um, uh, Securities Investor Protection Corporation. And I just, for example, Schwab has, you know, protects and most broker, broker dealers protect up to 500,000, uh, uh, including up to 250,000 of cash, uh, about 500 per, per account. But most broker dealers, or these the the, um, the 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 large secure ones, have supplemental coverage above that. So, for example, Schwab has insurance that brings all, all the way up to 100 uh, up to 150 million or thereabouts. So, you know, uh, then the question becomes, what what is a scenario where a broker dealer, uh, you know, runs into problem where the SIPC would would need to be called upon? And that's where you get into the reality that there have been very few broker dealer failures. Um, there have been some very high profile ones, and usually it's a result of fraud or some just gross negligence. You know, some, for example, Bernie Madoff, when, when Madoff Securities went belly up, that was SIPC stepped in and, and uh, you know, turns out Madoff was, you know, because it, 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 they were their own custodian, they were literally fabricating client trades and statements out of thin air printed on a dot matrix printer I learned recently. So, you know, really be careful where you keep your assets. Uh, we have no concerns about the the big three, you know, just to, to well, I guess big two now, Schwab, TD, and Fidelity. Um, we have, we see no reason to be concerned about those right now, especially if you're holding your assets in things like T-bills and not in a, you know, uninsured, uh, you know, uh, cash account. Um, 
And um, but if you're with a small broker dealer that uh, you know kind of has a, a boiler room kind of feel to it, where there's you know thin staff and and they're doing things old fashioned way. If you're getting statements on dot matrix printer, uh, I'd say run as quickly as you can. Um, but uh, really important to understand you know the where your money is, how it's safe, and and how it's invested. There's how you invest it is uh, is goes a long way to uh, you know alleviating a lot of these these concerns that otherwise should be on, on your minds. All right. Good point. I'm, I'm, I'm sure those were questions on a lot of people's minds. So I appreciate you going into them, John. Um, you echo what Lance Roberts said on this channel uh, in the, over the weekend um, in terms of the, the layers of insurance that, uh, you know, the, the big reputable brokerages ha have on them. Um, so I just want to underscore from him and from you right now, you guys are saying, look, if you're if you're banking with one of these big brokerages or you're, you're, you're investing with one of these big brokerages, we don't see any signs of, of real worry here. Um, and, and two personal anecdotes I just want to share. Um, one is that uh, I, I got pinged yesterday by um, someone I know who, you know, worked in Wall Street their whole career. Uh, and they said, hey, I just made a bunch of money yesterday on, on uh, some uh, options that I bought on Schwab 24 hours ago because I, I've been in this business long enough. You know, I, I, I know what's good. I know what's not. There was definitely baby with the bathwater going on there. And, you know, that turned out to be a really profitable trade for me, um, you know, basically capitalizing off the fact that, that, that the market was just over panicking at that time. Um, secondly, I just want to share, too, this is in no way uh you know and in uh me saying that that uh i, I know anything uh that's not public because uh, I, I i don't um but uh so I, I i i'm not making a a prediction or a definitive statement here about schwab's financial condition all i can say is i have a substantial percentage um of of my you know investments with schwab and i'm keeping them there so um you know if that changes uh, I talked a few weeks ago that, that we're starting this new alert service where I'll let folks who are subscribed to our email system know if I actually ever change my behavior um, because of some important concern or some big important opportunity. I'd put an alert for that, but I'm I'm nowhere near doing that right now. I'm still keeping my money with Schwab. Um, all right, John, um, I, I, just before I forget it, um, I, I just want to pull up a quick chart here. You were talking about how the game has really sort of changed um, with, uh, you know, for the Fed, in other words, it was, it was finally, we had talked for, for weeks, months, I think months about how the Fed was engaged in this game of chicken with the markets where it kept saying, look, I'm going to go higher for longer. And the market kept saying, no, I don't think you're going to. And finally the market started to capitulate, um, and it began pricing in more rate hikes. Um, then we had this, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank thing. And uh, and now all of a sudden, you know, it's 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 repricing uh what it thinks the Fed's going to be able to do. I just want to put up this chart here from the CME's FedWatch tool to show how drastically things have changed. So right now, uh there's a 62% odds that the Fed's gonna just hold things, it's it's gonna pause. It's 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 not gonna raise at the next meeting. Um, and 37% odds that it's going to hike by 25 basis points, 0% odds that it's going to hike by 50 basis points. If you go back just one week, <laughs> it was 0% odds of staying flat, 21% odds of a 25 basis points, and 79% uh, odds 
uh, of a 50 basis point hike. So it, it does show like things just changed really quickly overnight for the Fed. Uh, of course, this potentially hampers the Fed's ability to you know continue to tighten the screws on inflation. Um, we'll see. Um, so like I said, the Fed's in its quiet period right now, uh, but we'll see pretty soon what it decides to do next. Any thoughts on that? I think it's exactly right. Uh, things are moving really quick. Uh, you know, we're starting to see the wobble that uh, that kind of starts on the fringes, and and you know, certainly hope it doesn't uh, get too much deeper. But there's there's plenty of um, excess in the system that can fuel a, a, a deeper wobble, in our opinion. So we're watching it very closely. Um, you know, any any any, uh, any big thing that comes out of the out of the out of the left field here, I think, is it could be enough to to dramatically change. Either way, um, what you just talked about there, the the, the odds of Fed action and, and the degree of those actions. So fortunately, it's it's a it's it's a, a real uncertain time, uh, probably more so than than uh, everyday people probably appreciate. Um, doesn't mean it's time to panic. Uh, it's time to be very prudent and and well positioned and protected. Um, but um, I, I think it's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of movements. Just just for example, yesterday. Um, uh, long-term treasuries rallied uh, tremendously. Actually, I'm losing track of the days. I can't remember if it was Monday or or uh, or, or Tuesday. Uh, I guess it was Monday, um, and uh, basically sold off, uh, reversed the whole gain within the day. It was it was a remarkable move. You know, so for example, TLT. Uh, let me just pull a chart up there. TLT, which holds 20 20-year treasury bonds, on Monday. Um, you know, went from 105 up to 109, and it, it closed. You know, actually got as low as 104. Uh, you know, so it had a, a tremendous. It's a huge range for that, and that just reason was doing that is interest rates were were jumping all over the place that day. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that real briefly. So um, not not only are things just super volatile right now, but the the short term reaction to you know what happened last week is that um, yields have started coming down, right? So, so the price of, of bonds are, are going up, or uh, treasury bonds are going up at least. Um, and uh, the precious metals have seen some of their best performance in a good long time. Now, if memory serves, I mean, I know you guys uh, have a fair amount of exposure to the precious metals in your, your general portfolios. Um, I think you also have some bond positions there. So, um, you know, how has been navigating the past week been for you guys at New Harbor? Yeah, it's been fine. Um, you know, we um, we have a, a roughly about ten percent uh, as a as a core position of gold mining stocks for for clients. Some have a little bit more, some have a tiny bit less, but that's a, a core position. So it's not a egregiously large, but we think appropriate position. Um, we have part of that hedged uh, with, with options. Uh, we have about 15% allocated to longer term uh, longer term U.S. Treasuries as a more short shorter midterm tactical trade. Both of those asset classes, which together are about 25% of our clients' accounts, uh, have have behaved very nicely in, in recent days. Um, not taking any victory laps, of course, because uh, things can move around very quick. But uh, but that that those have been two asset classes that have. Have have done you know very very well in the wake of of this recent news. Okay, all right. Well, look, we're going to have to wrap it up there, just time wise. But clearly, uh, things have gotten interesting, and uh, as the the ripple effects from all this stuff continue, um, we will 
continue to monitor it and, and try to digest it and, and break it down and explain it to folks here. Um, John, I'm really looking forward to seeing you this coming weekend. Um, we've got just a reminder to folks, uh, just 48 hours left to sign up for Wealthy on Saturday online conference. Um, it's gonna be amazing. I've talked about it enough on this program that I, I will just be brief here and say, if you haven't signed up for it yet, go to wealthion.com slash conference. You'll get all the details for it there, uh, but you can register and lock in your ticket before the actual event on Saturday. If you can't watch live Saturday, don't worry. Everybody who registers are gonna be sent replay videos of all the presentations and all the live Q&A that go on throughout the day, but it's gonna be wonderful. And John and his uh, colleagues there at New Harbor uh, are gonna be co-hosting it with me throughout the day. So thanks in advance for that, John. Um, all right, um, folks, uh, just wanna reiterate, um, everything we've just talked about is exactly why I'm so repetitive on the end of these programs about why folks, most folks should be working with a professional financial advisor who can you know, create a customized portfolio strategy for them, but then help them execute it, especially as you know, events like what we're seeing happen over the past week develop where you know, you're, you're being nimble and you're making the right changes in the portfolio as appropriate for what's going on both on the ground, but also you know, what the, the, the future macro environment looks like. If you've got a good one who does that for you, great, stick with them. They are incredibly valuable right now. But if you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe even John's team uh, there at New Harbor, just schedule a free consultation with the financial advisors who were endorsed by Wealthion by going to wealthion.com and filling out the short form there. Doesn't cost you anything, no commitment to work with these guys. They just offer this as a public service. Um, John, I'll give you the last word here as we begin to wrap up. Yeah, really looking forward to seeing y'all on, uh, on on Saturday at the Wealthian Conference, Adam. Really always look for the opportunity to learn from your esteemed panel of guests, and we'll be happy to contribute uh, in the way that we can. And uh, viewers out there, many of whom are our clients, you know, we're here to, to answer your questions always. So just reach out. Our team is is ready. That's, that's why we're here. And um, you know, we uh, we don't always have all the answers, but we have uh, we certainly think through and, and make good judgments or try to make good judgments and be happy to, to have conversations if, if you have burning questions about anything. All right. Thanks, folks. And if you enjoyed this interview with Pedro, uh, as well as the discussion here with John, please do me a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. John, thanks so much again. Looking forward to seeing you this weekend. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Bye now, Adam. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. 
We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching. Thank you.